all right. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're presented by Hip Politics Network. Lots of great content there. I would encourage you to check out. Follow the show on Instagram at Here Comes the Pain Pod. That's at Here Comes the Pain P O D on Instagram. Follow me on Twitter at P A Y N E D C. Looking forward to today's episode. Um, have a guest here who really has some great insights on being a Republican in the era of Trump. Um, what the Republican Party, those folks who maybe did not go along with Trumpism, how they have been coping these last three, four years and some of their plans for the Republican Party after Trump, whenever that is, whether that's this November or whether that's four years from now. I've got a guest who is expert in all of those issues, and we're going to have a great back and forth and conversation. I'm going to bring him in now. His name is Tim Miller. He is the political director for Republican Voters Against Trump, and he is a contributor to The Bulwark. Tim, thanks for joining me. Hey, Joel. Good to do it, man. Happy to get on here and uh, talk about uh, my... Uh the, the travails of my quasi-former party. Absolutely, yeah. I was just, Tim, you and I were talking, and we've gotten a chance to be on TV together a couple of times, doing some uh, some of those segments and those panels. I, I know we both miss the frequency that we were able to do that before the pandemic, so hopefully we'll be able to get back on there again soon, but this will suffice for now. This should be a good conversation. Um, right, let's do it. Tim, I, I wanted to just start by talking about you know, your experience the past three plus years as of one, I guess, maybe even before that, looking at kind of that Republican par, uh, primary in 2015 and 2016, as you saw Trumpism become a thing and start to take over the party that I know you care about deeply and the movement that you care about deeply. What has that been like to watch that process, to watch Trump become president and to watch, depending on your perspective, I imagine you arrive of the similar perspective, watching Donald Trump systematically take apart the Republican Party that you know and love. Would, would you talk about that a little bit and what that experience has been like? Yeah, it sucked. <laughs> um, I, don't, uh, I don't know. There's, there's no way to put a good, good lens on it. Um, you know, it was... I, I, I had a sense. I mean, I, look, I think that there was uh, a lot of blindness. Stuart Stevens has written a good book about this called It Was All a Lie um, from some of us in the Republican establishment about some of these darker forces that were always present, but that we thought were, um, you know, hiding in our basement, or we thought were maybe, uh, as Charlie Sykes says, recessive genes within the party that ended up becoming dominant genes. And so, you know, we, we saw this, so we knew we were fighting against it. You know, I, I was on the opposite side of this kind of populist nationalist uh, element within the party in every primary I worked on, basically, for, for you know, 15 years from when I, I left college um, in 2004, all the way up to working for Jeb in uh, 2016. Uh, and but we knew it was there. I, I just I did believe that our better angels were going to prevail. Um, I, I thought that if 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 maybe this um, this current within the party was going to become dominant, that it would be more of the Ted Cruz variety, of which I have some policy differences of with, of course, but I, the campaign that he ran on in 2016, you know, was at least, um, you know, one that was kind of based in policy and based in some of the traditional, you know, Republican views, even though, though we, we diverge on some of the particulars. Uh, what Trump did, though, was he was just like the Kool-Aid man just jumping through the wall, you know, and he just and he just totally ripped it, ripped all that apart and and threw away 
any of the good elements, any of the things that were attractive uh, about the party to me, a party that I'd worked for my whole life. And, um, you know, we saw it very slowly happening at first and then just very quickly. Uh, you know, when he got in the race, I thought it was kind of a joke. But within about a month, I remember sitting on my couch in Miami working from Jeb, watching him do that press conference at the Iowa State Fair where he just eviscerated Jeb and, and you know, used racist language targeting his wife. And, and I just knew sitting right there that this was going to be a beast that, that was going to be tough to tame um, and that we were going to have to take it seriously. I, I still thought maybe not Jeb, but that somebody um, would beat him um, within, within my wing of the party. Tim. Um, but uh, obviously I was wrong. Tim, to talk a little bit to, to the listeners who may not know your resume and your background sure. quite as well. I know you, you referred to, obviously, former Florida Governor Jeb Bush. Um, obviously, you worked for him in 2016. But talk about your, your resume and who you've worked for. And then about that experience with Governor Bush, who obviously I think he became the first flashpoint in, in this Donald Trump Experiment, You know, Donald Trump really kind of took him to town and, listen, um, join the club. I worked for Hillary Clinton, so he did the same thing to my candidate about a year later. Um, although I, I would I would differ with the idea of what people think when they say take them to town. I mean, Donald Trump won because he captured something in the country. I don't know if there was a deficiency in the people that we worked for. I think it was about where the country was and having a politician that could hear that. But be that as it may. Talk a little bit about that experience with Jeb and maybe some of the other folks you've gotten a chance to work for in your career. Yeah, so um, I, I was basically a Republican campaign gypsy um, from college. I did campaigns in, in Delaware, uh, Virginia, Iowa, Colorado, Florida, um, and then and then three presidentials uh, for McCain uh, in 08 and then Huntsman in 12. I was his national spokesperson. Uh, and then after we lost to Rodney, I begged my, I went to Boston and kind of you know, threw myself at the mercy of the of the court and begged them to have me on, and luckily they did um, in 2012 to help to help Mitt Romney, um, a guy that I, I I really grew to admire, even despite campaigning against him twice, you know, for McCain and then Huntsman, uh, and then and then started a group called America Rising, which was a Republican opposition research outfit um, that still exists that, that I had to leave and part ways with over Trump, um, and then you know in 2016 was communications director for Jeb. Uh, so Tim. Tell me about that experience of working for Jeb Bush and, you know, I, I think I've heard you talk about it before as Trump being really good at branding. If you have to give him credit for something, his ability to brand is, is something that you noticed uh, as being someone who was an opponent. Yeah, he might be losing his touch on that a little bit with Sleepy Joe, but we'll good see. Point. But, uh, I think that uh, he is good at it and he's good at manipulating the media. And his other superpower is he has this shamelessness about him that he, he just, you know, whereas a lot of politicians, everybody, you know, fudges the truth a little bit and uses hyperbole uh, and, and is, is, you know, willing to you know, be a little bit of hypocritical at times if it's necessary. This is a common trait about politicians. That's why people hate politicians. But, but Trump, you know, took that all to you know, took it to 11, right? He just has a complete shamelessness about him and his ability to make his arguments. And so what that did, you know, particularly with Jeb, I think since we were first out of the gate, was that, that we were playing on this extremely un, uneven playing field where Jeb, um, you know, was basically playing flag football and Trump was, you know, playing by XFL rules, right? And, and, and you know, Jeb was a good metaphor. Older than his father and he got uncomfortable 
making a lot of these kind of personal attacks. Uh, whereas obviously Donald was, you know, willing to attack Jeb's wife and his family and to lie about him and to, you know, uh, do all the kinds of below the belt attacks that that was, that was you know, not in Jeb's nature. And and so I, so I think that made it very challenging for him to kind of get out from under um, the the Trump. Um, attacks and, and the effective branding campaign that he ran against Jeb as, as being low energy. Yeah, and, and Tim, I also know you worked on that Republican autopsy, that, that much yeah. vaunted uh, Republican autopsy <laughs> in 2012, uh, which I, I think you guys were, you know, whomever was a part of that, forgive me for not knowing more about the effort, but it was really to, f- to figure out how to modernize the party and how to, to make the party more competitive in this century and in kind of a new wave of elections with an ever-changing country. Obviously, Trump is a big diversion from that. Why, why do you think that the party decided to essentially ignore those recommendations? Yeah, it's such an interesting um, you know, little time capsule because I was there working on that with Reince Priebus, Sean Spicer, Ari Fleischer, who all went full Trump, um, and Elise Stefanik. Um, who, who ended up kind of going full Trump. Uh, and then a couple of folks, Sally Bradshaw, who worked for Jeb, um, who, who has basically left the party in politics altogether, um, and then myself, who went never Trump. So, you know, while we all kind of agreed on these recommendations at the time, you know, it's been interesting that, um, you know, the fact that once Trump came in and basically threw it all in the trash, you know, to see who went along with him and, and, and who kind of stuck to their guns. But, um, you know, the, the gist that we had put forth at the time of this autopsy was we didn't think that the path forward was to get more vote, white votes, right? And Mitt Romney had won uh, essentially the same percent of the white vote that Ronald Reagan had won uh, in his landslide victory in 84, um, but, but had lost because of the changing demographics of the party. And so uh, we thought that the obvious reaction to that is, okay, well, we're going to have to change the or changing demographics of the country, rather. We're going to have to change the demographics of the party to match the country. And, and, and what there was a counter narrative um, that was, um, you know, that the Ted Cruz team thought was the right approach and that Trump, I don't think he actually thought about it like this, but this was just an instinctual thing for Trump, which was, actually, why not try to get even more of the white vote by, by attracting working class white voters? And, and, and so, you know, basically what they did is, is go exactly 180 degrees the opposite of what we, we recommended. And, and, and uh, clearly that was a successful strategy. And I think that there is, despite the fact that the demographics of the country continue to change, it continues to potentially be a fruitful strategy, particularly in a Senate that, that you know, where you know, a lot of the states that make up the majority of the Senate are very white. And, um, you know, again, if you look at if you try to make the working class white vote vote more, you know, like maybe Hispanics vote for Democrats and make it 70, 30 rather than 60, 40, um, you know, that that's still the, the majority of the of the country. And so that was the route that they went. Um, I think that is going to create some very, we're already seeing just the dramatic and negative socio and cultural impacts. Um, but as a short-term political strategy, um, it worked. But Tim, badly. even, even you know, I think it's so interesting when people talk about that percentage of the white vote, which I, I'm not encouraging the Republican Party to only focus on white voters, but that's even less problematic if, if you kind of think about the type of white voter that Trump appeals to, right? It's not like educated white women in the suburbs, right? Because you could, you could grow your base 
by also growing into like that suburban vote the, the those you know more educated white voters more college graduates but it's a specific type of white voter that trump has targeted and that trumpism has really spoken to and that's the part that's problematic right like sure every party should be trying to reach out to latinos and african americans asian americans um a diverse you know everybody kind of wants a, di a diverse uh, array of people who support their party platform but even if there was diversity among the type of white voters that Republicans went after, that would even help, right? Well, sure. I mean, it certainly would make the party look more like something that I would like. Uh, it would appeal to me. Um, I, you know, I think that just, uh, to, in first answer your question, I think that there's something inherently problematic about having um, uh, uh, the major parties divided on racial lines where one party is, is you know, entirely, um, you know, the majority race within the country and, and then the other party is, is you know, a coalition of, of the uh, minorities uh, within the country. I, I, I just, that's, that, that creates a lot of, you know, social and cultural issues and problems that um, I think on its face, it, you know, is bad, no matter which kind of voters it was. Um, and, and I think it allows... You know the party you know, uh, to, to play more into you know these sort of racial grievance issues white racial grievance issues um, that are uh, uh, you know very obviously divisive but nothing corrosive to our, our you know, body politic um, but yeah I mean like you said I, I think that if you look back at the um, uh, autopsy what we were arguing is that you could diversify the party and make gains in the suburbs, right? You could do both these things together um, uh, because the party could attract these types of voters. And you know what? One party actually has taken that recommendation, the Democrats. Uh, you know, all of these voters that we were arguing should we should be trying to pull into the Republican coalition, these swing women in the suburbs, you know, these... Um, you know, college-educated Latino voters, uh, uh, um, Asian-American voters in particular, we thought, you know, could, could come back to the party. All of these voters have moved in droves to the Democratic Party. And if you look at Biden's coalition, uh, it, w it was, you know, largely this established, um, you know, African-American vote uh, base within the Democratic Party. Uh, but on top of that, it was a lot of these new swing voters that came into the Democratic Party in 2018. And so, you know, what we've done is repel these voters. I think that's changed the makeup of the Republican Party, maybe permanently, um, but definitely in the short term, um, in ways that are un very, I think, problematic about where they go from a policy standpoint. We're on the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne, and we're joined by Tim Miller, who's the political director for Republican Voters Against Trump and who is a longtime Republican communications advisor, consultant, guru. Um, Tim, I'm sure you'll let me keep blathering on the praise yeah, um, on to you. Um, I know how us comms guys, we like, we like that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of uh, positive reinforcement. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you, you talked a little earlier about some of your colleagues who you worked on the autopsy with, people like Reince Priebus. You talked about... Um, you know, some of the other folks that you cited there who essentially decided to go full Trump. And I want to talk about like those folks. It's not the people who've been Trumpers the entire time. It's the people who kind of decided like, okay, this is what we're doing. Got to kind of go with the party. How many of them do you think, like if you had to do like a percentage pie, and maybe this is too hard to, you know, do just off the, off the top, but 
What percentage of Republicans do you think are like that, who really are uncomfortable with Trump? Like if you got them in an honest moment, they're uncomfortable with Trump, but they've said, hey, he's the president. We're going to get some judges. We're going to get some deregulation. You know, we're going to get some good tax policy. I'll hold my nose when he gets on his Twitter feed. What, do, what percentage would you put at the party? Are you talking about what percentage of elected officials or what percentage of rank and file Republicans? I guess like if you just had to kind of go with, you know, just overall, like kind of the Repub- like the Republican energy in America, if it's not like 100 yeah. percent, like what percentage of that, what percentage of that energy behind Trump are voters like that or are people like that? would be a better way yeah, to put I, it. I, I would say it's about 20% um, of the party um, is w- w- says that, you know, actively, um, you know, rates him as unfavorable on at least something. Um, and then I think probably another 10% just generally, you know, he's not their cup of tea. Um, but but they, they, you know, think that, the Democrats are the bigger enemy. So, I mean, I still think it's a majority of the party for sure that is energized about Trump and that likes a lot of the things that I hate about Trump. That's what they like about him. Um, but, you know, when we do do research within Republican voters against Trump and trying to attract voters, there, there's a bigger segment than you think that are gettable. And, you know, there's, there's um, you know, a very low-hanging fruit group of about four or five percent of the party that we're trying to move over to Biden that really just don't like Trump at all and and maybe they didn't vote for him last time or maybe they really held their nose and vote for him because of Hillary um, and I think that's sort of the first cut and then you've got another maybe 15 percent that is the groups that you're talking about and, and this group is the key the key group um, and and what they're they they basically view Trump unfavorably they don't like the tweets you know they're they see themselves more as a Bush you know Reagan kind of Republican, then they see themselves as a Trump Republican. But but what they really see is the problem within this country is the left and the media and the far, and Antifa and the far left. And so they are, you know, anti-anti-Trump. And, and those are the folks that, that now, as you've seen his numbers dip more, some of them are starting to peel off. And that's the people that we're trying to talk to, these, these, these voters that, that don't really see themselves as Trump Republicans, but they hate the Democrats more. Um, his response to the virus, uh, his response to the protests, you know, these compounding um, crises that we face and his inability to address them, you've started to see them chip away a little bit. Um, so, you know, it's not a significant portion if you're saying, oh, man, are we going to win a primary against Trump with these guys? No. But is it is it significant enough to help create a blowout election against him if they all were to break against him? You know, absolutely. Like, look, 15 percent of the party is you know, basically 15 million people in an election that was lost by 80,000 votes. It makes a big difference. it's a very significant portion in that sense. Hey, I'm just trying to make sure Milwaukee shows up. I mean, that's, you know, every Democrat has seen that uh, New York Times story about the neighborhoods in Milwaukee that just straight up didn't show up. Uh, You know, we we might be dealing with a very different world right now. So, yeah, uh, every vote matters. Just really quick on that, like, People don't realize how close it really was. And, and oh, I do. If you Tim, I do. Fix, yeah, <laughs> if you just fix one of these things, right? If, if in Wisconsin, if you just fix the Milwaukee neighborhoods, but but don't gain any Never Trumpers, you win, right? But on the flip side, if the Milwaukee neighborhoods still don't turn out, but we're able to win over half of the McMullen and Gary Johnson and write-in voters, all these all these Jill Stein. soft Republicans who are like a pox on both your houses, I can't vote for Hillary. If we just win half of those folks over to Biden, 
and 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 and, and uh, you know youth vote and the, and the black vote still doesn't turn out, then Biden still wins, right? I mean, yeah, you know, Hillary just had to move one of these groups uh, just a little bit to get over the line, and and so and so you know for Biden that leaves a lot of potential on the table. Tim, this question might only be interesting to me, but I have this um, th- this this thing where you hear people talk about well, Trump has the highest intensity of support within the Republican Party, and they'll point out polls that show that Trump's at like 92, 93% in the party. And then you go back and look at like Mitt Romney at the peak of the 2012 campaign, or you go and look at George W. Bush, um, and so on and so forth. That's table stakes, right? Like a, a, a party standard bearer is going to have the support of their party. Hillary Clinton had 90 plus percent of Democratic support. What I hear people tell me in in a retort to that is, well, it's the intensity. How many people are going to go like stand out in five degrees below zero and stand at a rally? Or how many people are going to knock on doors? And how many people are going to post something on their social media? Is that how you think about intensity as well? Yeah, and it and it also it also includes the hold that he has over the party. I mean, look, I so I wrote an article for Rolling Stone. Your folks might be interested in where they asked me to call my old buddies who are Republican consultants and, and let them speak honestly on the background about about the state of affairs, and you know whether whether or not it's possible to distance from Trump and get out from under him um, if he continues to spiral. And the answer was universally no. And one of the interesting things that one of the consultants told me is that is he kept emphasizing this point. It was said, Tim, you know, Donald Trump is the most popular Republican president alive or dead at any time in history. Which is a ridiculous um, statement and, to me. And, and yeah, and so what that means is that is that his voters, these voters, loyalty to him is the number one thing. Like a different consultant told me that that, he, that they did a primary poll where eighty plus percent of voters said the most important issue on which congressional, I forget if it was congressional or Senate race, on which candidate in the primary they supported was was whether they were loyal to Trump. And so so that is why he has this hold over the party um, uh, in a way that, that Bush never really did. I mean, you got to, people got to distance from Bush and not fear any backlash from, from voters. I mean, the voters liked Bush, but they did not, they didn't have that same level of intensity. It wasn't even close to Romney. So, so yeah, I think it's both in turnout, but also in, in the loyalty that he engenders is reflected in the intensity. Makes sense. So I want to talk a little bit about Republican Voters Against Trump, the group that you're the political director of. It, it feels like the, the spot that you guys have focused on is elevating these testimonials from you know republicans or former republicans however they would define themselves and putting those you know creating a story bank to to have those folks really talk about their experience of being ostracized from donald trump's republican party you want to share a little bit about what got you guys to focus on that as your secret sauce and and how that's been that collection process yeah um uh, listeners can go look at these at uh, rvat republican voters against trump.org um, and um, rvat.org and uh, you know it, this really came out of the research and what we found was we spent a couple of years focus grouping and we talked to just one group of people people that voted for donald trump but then when asked in a survey said that they either had a somewhat or very unfavorable view of his performance so we just want to talk to those people and learn about them and, 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 and what we found in talking to these people and in testing messages to them is, is you know, this shouldn't be that surprising, I guess, but they, they, they were, this is an anti-elite bunch. I mean, they voted for Donald Trump, and they don't want to hear from elites 
you know, who think that Donald Trump is dumb because they take that as an insult. They think that means that they're, they think that they're dumb, you know? Um, and, and so a lot of times they would tune out ads and messages, you know, within the first 10 seconds because they, they didn't care. They didn't like the messenger and they weren't interested in what that messenger had to say. And so we found that when we were showing them um, videos of people like them, it didn't necessarily make them change their mind immediately, but they were at least listening, right? Like, the, you know, people, when they would hear from other conflicted voters who's, who were saying, well, I like Trump because of this, but I, I've been disappointed in him because of this, that, and that, the other thing. Uh, or, uh, or, you know, maybe they say, I don't love Joe Biden that much. He's not my cup of tea, but, but I'm just going to suck it up and go for him because, you know, I think it, I think we need a temporary fix. You know, th- like that message resonated more than than the typical message um so that was one reason we decided to do it and the other reason is a lot of these folks feel homeless man i mean these videos are like one part ad one part therapy session for all these people i mean they, they just they're looking for somebody to talk to about the fact that this thing that's been such a big part of their identity being a republican has been taken away from them and that most of their friends and family are sticking with it and they don't even they don't get why and so, um, so uh, there's this kind of socialization and community building element of it too, um, that we think has some value and, and draws people in. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're doing some of the other campaign stuff too, but we really think that's the, the, the highest and best use of us as a group. And, um, and we also think it helps us reach the most people because we, we really, we named ourselves Republican voters against Trump for a reason. We want to be able to reach that person that might still like Republicans, you know, th- that person who might vote for Tom Tillis in North Carolina, but but also for Joe Biden. Uh, you know, this is a small slice of the electorate, but it could make the difference. And we, we don't want to throw that voter away. So we want to reach out to, you know, as many people as possible. Um, and, 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 and we think this is the best way to do it. Thank you for explaining that. You know, it's interesting. You're talking about the, the branding piece there and, and that you know, you've got so many folks that still kind of like their party, right, or the party that they used to know. Um, a, a term I've tried to avoid using in my conversation with you, but admittedly, I kind of throw it around a lot, maybe when I'm not right in front of a, a Republican who finds themselves in your circumstance, there's a term never Trumper. And it feels yeah. like it's become a bit of a slur, um, yeah. almost like in a, in a term I've actually generated to is sometimes Trumper. You know, you've got yeah. your never Trumpers who are folks who are all the way like from day one who are like this is a bad idea like we need to get off of this guy and the sometimes trumpers are the folks i was talking about before who were like well i don't really like what he tweets but judges <laughs> do you do you feel that do you when you hear that term never trumper you know again the pre- the president i think has successfully branded that as kind of like a part of the resistance in the deep state and he's he's really kind of captured that term from you i imagine that's part of why you guys purposely rebranded your organization as such right um for sure uh I, at a personal level you can call me a never trumper all day long man i don't think that is a slur hell yeah i'm a never trumper never ever ever from day one um uh, and i will be um you know if he runs again or his kids run it's just this is uh, to me, um, I, I'll take their hate and loathing, and that's fine. But I, I do think that that for some voters, it's seen as a pejorative uh, because of his branding. And it's seen as it's very as a very DC centric term, I think, um, as well. You know, there weren't I don't think a lot of regular folks calling themselves never Trumpers. There were some, but uh, I think it was more of kind of a DC Beltway term. And so, you know, that that is part of the reason why we why we branded as Republican voters against Trump. And and the other reason is. You know, from a strategic standpoint, um, 
some of these folks might not be able to get there all the way on Biden, even. You know, and yeah. and so if you look at if you consider the strategy here, a, a voter that voted for Trump last time that we can convince to just write somebody in or stay home or whatever, but they they just can't get there to Biden because being a Republican is just so ingrained in their, you know, biology or because of one issue, pro-life issue or something. Um, That's still a plus one for Joe Biden, right? If we get somebody that voted for Gary Johnson last time and move them to Biden, that's a plus one for Biden. That's the same, you know, and so... So, so we want to make sure we're trying to capture and reach those folks for whom, yeah, the idea of like never Trump or a rhino, that doesn't appeal to them. Um, but, but, but they just can't, you know, this time around, uh, you know, he just hasn't done the job well enough for them. We want to be able to reach those folks too. Uh, and, and I don't think those folks are going to see themselves as never Trumpers. They're more of the sometimes Trumpers that you're talking about. I want to share a moment with you and then lead that into my next question. So um, about, I guess it was maybe a month ago, Carly Fiorina, who, you know, obviously ran for president and was Ted Cruz's um, erstwhile vice president designee um, during the primary last time around, came out and said that she would vote for Joe Biden and that she could not support Donald Trump. And it's so funny. You know the emotion that I had the first thing I thought, and this is like my instant reaction. Um, I have a little, I'm sure you have like a text chain with like political buddies and I've got one too. And I said, and I won't use all the language because I'm trying to make this a family podcast. I said, God, people really effing hate Hillary Clinton, don't they? (laughs) And that's the first thing I thought. So my question off that observation is (laughs) how much of this movement that you're a part of to get Republican voters mobilized against Trump is dependent upon the Democratic Party nominating, you know, they they nominated Joe Biden. If this was Bernie Sanders, if this was Elizabeth Warren, how much harder did would that have made your job? Do you think that that's a real thing? Does Joe Biden enable you guys to to be able to position this the way you're positioning it? Yeah, I mean, I would have done it for whoever because, you know, I'm an I'm a OG never Trumper. Uh, but um, I, I think it would have been much harder for Warren and, and uh, Sanders. Um, and, and two things we've learned from these focus groups. One is what you're saying about Hillary Clinton is is just the truth. And I, and I think that maybe we'll agree on some of us disagree on some. I think some of it was her own doing. Uh, some of it was sexism. Some of it was my fault. You know, people like me, uh, you know, who spent the first 15 years of your career and and branding her as a bad guy. I was going to say you you spent, Tim, you probably Tim, you probably spent the first 15 years of your career, um, you know, taking batting practice at Hillary Clinton. So, yes, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. So I take some blame on that for sure. So, I mean, I think that once you combine all three of those things. Uh, boy, uh, yeah, she was in a tough spot. And we hear from, you know, we hear from focus groups from people who are pretty rapidly anti-Trump now. They would just say to us, you know, I just, I'd, I'd had it beaten into my brain for year, for decades that the Clintons were all that was wrong with politics. You know, these are Rush Limbaugh listeners, daily listeners, right? They, getting all the way to Hillary was just not doable for them. And so um, I think that she was unique. Now, I think that some of those people could have gotten there for Warren or Sanders, maybe after four years of Trump in office. But um, but we would still when you'd have a focus group of 10 of these people voted for Trump, um, uh, said that they have an unfavorable view of him. Now, we'd ask them, would you vote for Biden? Almost all the hands would go up. Would you vote for Pete? Almost all the hands would go up. Would you vote for Amy? Almost all the hands would go up. Would you vote for for Bernie? Eh, half the hands. Would you vote for Warren? Even less usually. So so there, there's maybe some evidence for some sexism there. But, um, you know, Bernie and Warren would have been a tougher ask for sure. 
And um, and look, I, I think that a lot of people say this is fake. There aren't swing voters, you know, da 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 da. da. I, I just think the Democratic primary proved this. Like there was this huge turnout surge in the Democratic primary, but it wasn't on the progressive left. It was in the suburbs. It was in the middle. And and that was part of why Joe Biden won in such a landslide. And so these voters are out there. And, you know, in a close election, I think that having Biden rather than Warren, um, at least speaking about my slice of the electorate, the, you know, um, never Trumpers, if you will, uh, and sometimes Trumpers, uh, uh, Biden was much better pitch uh, for us. It's the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We are joined on today's episode by Tim Miller, who is the political director for Republican Voters Against Trump. He's also a contributor to The Bulwark. And he and I are having a good conversation here about his beloved party, the Republican Party, in the era of Trump and, and the work. Beloved. Uh, once beloved. There you go. Scorned. Okay, once beloved. Lover Thank scorned. you for the scorned lover left at the altar. Uh, his formerly beloved party, the Republican Party in the era of Trump, and the work he's doing to reclaim the party um, from uh, the president and from his allies and, and some of his ideas. I may have done too much editorializing there, Tim. But um, in our last couple minutes, I want to talk a little bit about going forward, regardless of what happens in November. And, and I think you and I are aligned on what we want to happen in November, which is for Donald Trump to be the former president and for Joe Biden to be um, president-elect. But in the kind of post-Trump era, whenever that starts, have you started to wrap your mind around what the Republican Party looks like? I imagine, even though the party has left you a bit now, you, you're not completely, you know, just like the folks for that you're identifying with your testimonials, you, you don't plan to completely abandon the party. And so when Trump is gone, have you thought about what that party looks like vis-a-vis -vis you and maybe others like you? Yeah, I'm, I'm pessimistic. I'm hopeful. I think it's worth fighting for, but I'm pessimistic. Um, well, for part for the reason we've been talking about a little earlier about the makeup of the party, you know, a lot of this isn't, you know, I think a lot of times people think that this stuff is very top down and that the politicians decide how the party's going to pivot, you know, in these strategic rooms around Washington. But really what happens most often is that the voters move and the politicians react to them. And so in our party, a lot of the people who would want to pivot the party back to, you know, more of a tolerant party, more of a welcoming party, um, you know, a party that, that sort of combines a you know, more of an economic um, uh, globalist uh, uh, mindset with socially tolerant views. Uh, these people have left the party. They're Democrats now, the people that want this, or independents, right? And the people who have come into the party are, are, are mostly former Democrats or former Perot voters, these blue-collar, culturally conservative, big government um, voters, uh, you know, voters who want to, you know, keep keep their Social Security, keep Medicare, and keep the immigrants out, right? That's who's come into the party. And so I, I, it's hard for me to see, you know, without a very dynamic leader, you know, um, moving voters into their camp through a primary and bringing people back into the party that had left, um, it seems to me like the plurality within the party is more of this nationalist populist kind of sentiment. Um, and so that, that worries me. Do you, even if he loses. Fair enough. Do you think that 
the the party and when i say the party i guess i should be more clear the establishment of the party who you know if you take away donald trump it's the mitch mcconnell's it's the kevin mccarthy's um it's your committee chairs it's your governors it's your young leaders like a josh howley um or a marco rubio you know folks like that do you think that let's say it's a it's a tough night this coming november is the move to continue to embrace elements of trumpism and of what donald trump brought to the party or is the move to completely erase him from the history books and almost treat it like it was a bad dream like i can imagine a press conference with mitch mcconnell a week after election day where he says well the former president um is who he is and i'm looking forward to working with a new senate and you know kind of doing the mitch mcconnell thing where he kind of does the mcconnell two-step and acts like donald trump didn't exist and starts to you know, try to distance himself from some of the worst parts of that Trump legacy. Do you get what I'm saying? Do you think it's going to be like yeah, an embrace? I, mean, I just, I think that's going to be real. I hope, I wish that would happen. I just think it's going to be very tough to do. I mean, like, look, let's imagine Trump loses, right? Let's, let's fast forward four years. A, he could run again. Okay. Even if he doesn't run again. Um, Don Jr. Yeah, it's not like he's going to move to Midland to paint like W, you know, he's going to be tweeting and going on Fox and Friends or maybe starting his own network. Who knows? Um, and so, and, and, you know, he doesn't take well to criticism. So I, I don't see a situation where, you know, Trump doesn't get invited to the 2024 convention and, and he takes that well, you know, uh, he, he's going to, he's going to, um, I don't want to curse, <laughs> send nasty Twitters at whoever, you know, is the, is the nominee if that happens. So, I just think this idea of totally washing him away is 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 is, is wishful thinking, and and the, the reality is that there will be some attempts to, for a synthesis between Trumpism and the older school Republicanism um, that maybe you know throws him some bones um, and and maintains some of his views on trade and some other issues um, uh, while. Uh, also trying to incorporate, you know, some old, more of the traditional Republican mindset. Uh, I, I think that fusion is is a more likely outcome. Are there national Republican voices, leaders that you feel like have handled this error better than others? In other words, let, let, you know, I'm thinking about who would be like the 2024 Republican hopefuls who were able to navigate Trump and Trumpism and uh, survive kind of Trump's wrath or avoid Trump's wrath, but are still people who you can sell um, to a wide audience going forward. So I'm thinking of like a Nikki Haley. Um, I'm thinking of, I mean, I don't think this, but like Tom Cotton, I know gets uh, mentioned a lot. Are there people who you feel like have managed this era well and who are positioned to be leaders of kind of the new post-Trump Republican Party? Well, I'll, I guess I'll start by saying I think that anybody that has, has navigated this in a way that I think is good is probably DOA in the new Trump party. So, you know, sure. Mitt, Larry Hogan, uh, I, I just I'm not that optimistic for my 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 people. Um, Nikki is the best example of the fusionism, um, you know, where she has pretty much maintained her independence, particularly in foreign policy matters, uh, while just doing the kind of suck up to Trump stuff that you have to do to avoid his wrath. Um, the stuff that I, I mean, I don't think is appropriate, but um, I think that she's maybe done enough there. 
um, to appease the Trumpers. Um, so I think that she she was obviously in a good position. Pompeo um, is a non-starter, I would assume. What's that? Pompeo is probably a non-starter, yeah, I would I assume. Don't, I, don't, yeah. I don't see that. I don't see Pompeo yeah. or Pence having the juice. Um, to me, I think that, that you're looking at kind of a Cotton or Hawley, Josh Hawley out of Missouri, as the more Trumpy senators. Um, uh, I think you have Haley as a little bit less Trumpy. Um, and then I think you probably have a Trump heir, uh, either Trump himself or Trump Jr. or maybe a Tucker. You know, I, I just I don't think that that wing is going to just disappear. Um, you know, Dan Crenshaw down in Texas, I, I wrote kind of a long scathing article on him, but I think that he might be a person that you could put in the Haley camp, somebody who's, who's um, uh, you know, gained a lot of celebrity in this time and tried to sort of walk this line um, of defending Trump at times while, um, uh, you know, being independent at other times, um, uh, you know, from, from a personal perspective, I think that he's done it in a way that's pretty gross, but uh, it's been effective politically. So um, uh, th- those are kind of the, the, the different buckets that I'd look at. Tim, and my last question to you, I guess I'd, I'd kind of invite you to reflect a little bit on this experience for you, it's kind of, you know, you're like a man without a country a little bit, um, you know, in your party or former party, however you choose to describe that. What, you know, when you kind of look back on this and we're, we're relatively young, right? So like, we're not encouraged to do like legacy type stuff and thinking about that. But, you know, when you look back in 20, 30, 40 years, what do you hope the legacy of your work at this time will be? What will you hope to be able to you know, have speak for how you reacted in this moment? You know, I just want to, I just want to, I, I, look, I don't think that like history is going to look at me at all, right? Or, I, or, people, or and, people like uh, you, you I know I just want what people I mean. to see, yeah. you know, uh, my peers to see that I did what I thought was right, you know, and, and look, I, I think that um, it, this, this isn't, to me, going never Trump is not something that like, deserves some sort of medal. I mean, he was um, uh, uh, unfit on his face. Uh, every, you know, he, he fails in every possible measurement of, of leadership and character. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't see um, the, the decisions that, that me and the other folks who, who left the party made as these like brave, big, bold, and brave moves. I, I think that we did um, what we thought was ob- what we thought was right and what was obviously right. And so, you know, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, uh, I, I think that um, there have been a lot of people who have been dishonest um, in how they've dealt with him. Um, a, a lot of people who have you know, compartmentalized a lot of very bad things that he's done. Um, and, and, you know, my hope is that um, uh, at some point they have to be held to account for that. I don't know that that ever will happen. I think that, that a lot of them will try to memory hold this. But um, uh, I, I, do, I do believe that, um, you know, hopefully in the end, people that, that spoke truth about, about this president um, might not be rewarded with big jobs. We're not doing this because we want to work in the Biden administration, or because you know all of that. But that that um, um, you know, kind of that judgment is 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 rendered correct. Well, Tim, uh, even if you don't feel like what you're doing is heroic, maybe I'll, I'll reserve the term heroic for things that you and I would agree are truly heroic. But yeah, I do sure. think it's remarkable, and um, I I know it's been 
um, kind of a labor of love for you. And I know it's been an interesting journey for you. So I wish you a lot of luck on it. Um, Again, we've got Tim Miller, who is the political director for Republican Voters Against Trump. He is a contributor for The Bulwark. Tim, tell us a little bit more about Republican Voters Against Trump and where people can find some of the great um, testimonials you've put up and anything else notable we should know about the work you're doing right now. Yeah, the, ac- the acronym is website, rvat.org. Um, I mean, these testimonials are really moving. Uh, honestly, these are people just, just sharing their angst over over a party in a, in a country that has left them. And so I encourage you to, to watch them. Some of them are make you cry. Uh, we just put up a guy, Jeffrey from Massachusetts, who's got a great masshole accent. Uh, he'll make you laugh. I encourage you to watch him. And um, uh, you know, I, I, we're, we're putting these ads up in states all across the country. So if you have friends and family in key swing states, please send them to them. Um, please post them on Facebook uh, because you know that's how how we spread um, uh, their message. And and you know, we're trying to um, use them as the vessels to advance our message. And uh, uh, you can read. Uh, my quasi-journalism and punditry and commentary at the Bulwark and uh, once a month at Rolling Stone. So I, I very much appreciate you guys checking it all out. Tim, I've uh, really enjoyed our conversation. I've learned a lot and appreciate your time. Look forward to connecting with you again in the near future. Good luck out there. Thanks, man. Sounds good. You too. All right. Take it easy. And this is the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. And we are going to be back next week with more good content for you. In the meantime, enjoy and God bless. Take care. Thank you.